comes the rain, with my anger comes a tide of emotion, killing joy, cutting steel across your eyes. Are you dead or insane? Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Jeremy Deathblade By for the Righteous Blood Ruthless Blades podcast. And today we're going to be talking about two movies. One is Magnificent Bodyguard, starring Jackie Chan. This is a 1978 film, and the other one is Reign of Assassins, which is a 2010 film starring Michelle Yeoh. Uh, you know, we've we've talked about this movie on on the channel before, and it came out fairly recently, so people are probably more familiar with that one. Um, the, the first movie, Reign of Assassins, is about, uh, I don't know, it's sort of a MacGuffin-y type plot, wouldn't you say, Deathblade? That it's, uh, it's about, they, they have this, uh, this, uh, mummified body of the, of the, um, Bodhidharma, right? And the Darkstone sect is trying to acquire it, and the protagonist in the movie is a character, depending on which version you watch, her name is either Drizzle or, I think, Shiyu? Was that the name that they used? In the... Yeah, which oh. literally does mean Drizzle, oh. but, yeah. And so, she takes one half of the Bodhidharma, and she tries to leave the, uh, the, 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 the world of assassins that she's a part of, and she has this encounter with a monk who kind of springboards are onto an enlightened path and she does a facelift to disguise herself she goes into hiding in a city and she ends up meeting a man uh, and marrying him and it turns out later and this is a spoiler that he is somebody that she thought she killed uh in order to obtain the bodhidharma in the first place and you know she then has to do like one final mission with the dark stone group to get out of their clutches, which eventually leads her uh, to to confront her old master. And, you know, there's a whole, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the, all of the threads are wrapped up and there is a, you know, sort of beautiful love story in the end. I don't know. Was there anything that I glossed over there, Deathblade? I think you hit most of the main points, yeah. Okay, so, um, so this movie, well, why don't you give your opinion of the film before I give mine? Well, I so I did watch this originally fairly shortly after it came out. I didn't watch it in theaters in China, but I did watch it shortly afterward. And then I watched it again in preparation for this podcast. And number one is I really, really like it. It's, it is almost so good that I would almost put it in my top like five favorite Usha films. I especially like that it's modern but it doesn't go crazy with the like wire work and you know ridiculous cgi effects i mean it does have some but it's not over the top and it all looks pretty good the only things the only reason why i hesitate to recommend it with like 10 stars or whatever like the ultimate rank is for basically two reasons number one i felt that the it almost should have been two movies like the the prologue sort of like explanation of what led up to the story went by so fast and so mm-hmm. flipping around back and forth between different events and, and narration and action that it's kind of a little bit 
like my mind was spinning mm-hmm. and then by the time the, the story then slowed down and got into the kind of more slow-paced normal story kind of forgot about it and then that to me at least sort of lessened the impact of the reveals later when you find okay. out what's really going on so I, I, again it's not like i didn't like it because of that but i feel like it, it just a lot of the emotional impact that could have been there was lacking because of the really super synopsis fast-paced introduction but yeah it's kind that, of there's, there's like really liked it there's like flashbacks and flash forwards and kind of like it, it, i i didn't have that reaction to it but i understand how you did you know I, me, I it would be almost like if you skipped star wars a new hope went right to empire strikes back and then recapped star wars a new hope by saying you know a young boy on a planet re- recovered a lightsaber then he went with his friends to rescue a princess and destroyed the death star now we pick up and then like you kind of miss all that i really feel that that opening section could have been a whole movie I... and especially the whole monk thing because i really it came out of almost nowhere and I, I felt like i was supposed to care about this monk and i was supposed to know who he was but he just came out of nowhere and you're like who is this guy and then all of a sudden she's supposed to fall in love with him and then you're supposed to care when he dies it was kind of like what see i had a different reaction now part of it might be that i'm pretty okay with like the very efficient storytelling techniques that they use in a lot of these movies where it's like okay this all happened and you just kind of accept it but i also feel like that scene with the monk they they they, he comes up kind of out of the blue but it all sort of connects together and they linger on that scene and it's done in an emotional way so that when it when that stuff comes up later it still has resonance for me but i think this again it's a very subjective thing so people are going to have a different reaction to it but you know my view on this movie is this is this is one of those wuxia films that really kind of gets almost so good it's out of the genre do you know what i mean like you could you could show it to people that don't necessarily watch wuxia and they they might enjoy it it also is kind of it's a much deeper wuxia film than than a lot of the others that are out there. So it it has layers to it. Every single time I see it, I notice new things, and I also just notice how how well it's constructed in terms of oh this is mirroring that and this is going on and and so it just it just feels like a film where there's a lot of texture and there's a lot of emotional weight to things and it has a very effective love story that you know i i think uh, holds everything together um and there's also just all kinds of interesting things where you know eh, there's kind of this 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 idea that everybody in the everybody in the movie kind of has a mask of some kind do you know what i mean uh, i like the way that they they you know that, that plays out through the dialogue and all that stuff but the the reason that we really brought this movie up was because we mentioned it in the righteous blood book and we uh this movie is specifically trying to feel like a gulong story and that's kind of what that's kind of what we were going for in righteous blood ruthless blade so it it feels like a very good movie for people to watch if they're trying to understand what we were trying to do and it has a lot of the stuff that we've talked about a lot of the anachronisms um it has a lot of the um uh, what would you call it? Like, like the scene in the bank. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of almost like a very modern-looking bank, and you know, but it's done in a way where it doesn't really feel out of place. So, so things like that. And specifically, I think this was the movie that we were thinking about in terms of magic, right? So, so I don't know. Yeah, any... I mean, I, I 
totally agree about all that and i think that especially one thing that i really liked was the the acting basically i so we've talked in the recent righteous blood podcast about a lot of kind of older movies and i pointed out how i've come to like the older movies a lot better now mm-hmm. that said there is something about that old style of acting and whatnot that is that i mean i like it a lot but it does come across as a little bit i don't know more like theater or something i don't know if that's yeah right it's word. more stagey it's more stagey yeah, more for sta- sure yeah and this one these characters just there's they seem very realistic especially there were a few that had really interesting and unique voices that I really liked, and well, well, who did you like? Who were some of the characters that you? Well, I mean, no. In terms of just the the like the voices and whatnot, there was I believe the it was either the banker or the uh, oil merchant. I think it was the oil merchant had a very sort of like deep and sort of like interesting sounding voice, and the magician as well had kind of a unique voice. And then on top of their voices, just they acted to me very sort of like realistic in a way that the sort of stagey theater like stuff kind of doesn't manage to capture yeah and i especially also like you know since we're doing this in the context of a role-playing game i think that each character was done very well in a way that made them unique and relatable they weren't just like we are hired killers they all had like an interesting backstory that led to their current state and some went into more details than others but that sort of motivated their character and provided a lot of great material for them to become realistic people which is kind of what i think a lot of people will aim to do in role-playing games as well yeah because you have like lee bin who's the um he's a guy who likes noodles and he uses needles right those are his two big things and 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 then you have the like you said the magician who obviously likes magic and you had turquoise Who's kind of like a psychopath? That's sort, but but it, but she's an interesting psychopath, and she's sort of a counter to the Wheel King. Like they're sort of a pair in an odd way, right? And and she's also a counter to Drizzle as well, because she's Drizzle's replacement. And and then you have Wheel King, who probably he's the one maybe with the most longing in the movie of all. Actually, he's kind of a sympathetic villain, even though he's ominous and terrifying. Um, yeah, well, I, I guess maybe the more I think about it, the, probably that's one of the reasons why I like it so much, because as opposed to having, you know, in a lot of Wush movies, you'll have the evil cult or the assassins or something, and they kind of just are sort of one-dimensional bad guys there to either cut down or, like, laugh maniacally. But each of these assassins, ha- like, you know, the noodle guy has a family at home, and he's yeah. hoping to finally kind of leave and travel back to their hometown. And the magician's kind of getting old and he wants to sort of get out of it but at the same time prove that he's the top guy and then yeah she's a psychopath but she she's like a psychopathic killer but there you know seems to be a bit behind that she was forced into a marriage or something along those lines i forget exactly and i think there's Um, also an ongoing thing where she her ego keeps getting bruised and like over the course of the movie and a lot of that is driving her her behavior it seems as well yeah yeah Um, for sure and then Wheel King is, you know, he starts out as what seems to be just like the evil villain guy, but then as his story becomes revealed, you realize that there's a much more sort of like visceral reason why he's doing all of this. And then, of course, I remember when I first watched it, I was like, what is the deal with his voice? Like, is he really trying to be intimidating or something? And then 
The second time I watched it, I forgot the explanation, and I thought the same thing again. I'm like, why does he have this weird, raspy voice? I forgot. Then when you find out later his backstory, it kind of like all makes sense. Yeah, no, I. Uh, that's one of the things I I, I, I like about about that character. I also think that um, I don't know, like his like the whole like there's a scene where he's fighting with Michelle Yeoh's character Drizzle or whatever her new identity is. Uh, was it Jet? Zhen Jing. I think she takes the name of the monk, right? Is that is that I forget, yeah. Um but she uh he basically says, you know, I just want to be a normal guy. Like that's all, you know, like is that too much? Do you know what I mean? It is it, a very re, you know, you know, obviously, you know, he he's still a bad guy cuz he killed so many people and all these things, but like it was a fairly reasonable thing to want and it was understandable. Um so I just kind of, yeah, I think overall the whole movie is very grounded like that. And it also has, it does this thing where it really gives you a sense of what a Zhang Hu should look like, too. It gives you a sense of, you know, because not, not only do you have the core characters, but there are a lot of peripheral characters in the movie. Like you have the, I, I don't know if they were meant to be Taoist or not, but you have the couple that's this, the master and the student that are married. And they're kind of like, I call, they're sort of like the, they're like the, the bizarro version of of Zhao Longnu and Yangua, if uh, if they were more selfish and betraying each other <laughs> yeah. and all these things, and they even kind of look like something doesn't quite look right about them. Do you know what I mean? Like there's something off. So, you know, things like that. I I just I, I just think that. And you have like the group that robs the bank. You have you have that big scene where Wheel King announces that he he wants uh, to pay anybody who captures Drizzle. And you you can see the the layout of the martial world just in that in that in that scene alone where all the all the heroes are gathered. So I I, I like how it does all that. Um, but my favorite part of the movie is just how emotional it is and how you know and how well it uses that motif of the bridge as the sort of thing that ties everything together over the course of the film. Uh, one thing I was wondering about: Do you think this movie? is a movie where all of the characters are actually in the afterlife and don't know it. <laughs> wow. That's, that comes out of, out of nowhere for me. Um... Well, cause it's like, he's the wheel King and he gets to the, you know, and he, in, in, in like, he has that whole speech at the end. And like, there's just something very weird about them. Like, it's very surreal in the way that it deals with a lot of the spiritual themes. And so I just was like, well, maybe this is one of these movie. And, and he even says like, the the priest has this big speech he gives when he talks about how like you know like letting go of the present letting go of the past letting go of the future how like those can't be they're not attainable do you know what i mean and and you kind of wonder well like you know one of the characters at least the um the Zhang An uh Ashang character right the the husband i mean he does in a way get killed at the beginning of the movie right even though it turns out his heart is on the wrong side and that's the explanation but well, you're gonna have to give me some more uh, some some more convincing evidence because okay. I'm I'm not buying that it's all now. Okay, but I, I'll I'll consider it. I'll I'll, I'll I, watch it next time with that with that mindset. I, I mean, I haven't like put together my argument for it. I don't really have one. It's just a vague sense that I get when I see the movie. Sometimes, like this, feels like it might be an afterlife type situation. But you know, I don't know. Um, well, anything is possible, I guess. Anything so, is possible. But uh. But anyway, so uh, I guess 
uh, one thing we should talk about is is the magician and magic because that was definitely something I remember you mentioning to me when we were making magic for the Righteous Blood Displays game. And obviously, there's a little bit of flexibility in how we handled magic, and we kind of we give it some room so that GMs can massage it however they want to an extent. But but I think both of our default was more in the zone of of what the magician is functioning as which is kind of like you uh, you were explaining to me before the podcast is he's, he's a little bit more of a of a proper like magician that we would see in the real world um yeah well what this watching it this time around there was something i didn't notice um compared to last time well not necessarily didn't notice but when i watched it this time i took a little bit of time to look up the names of everything in chinese so i was watching with english subtitles i i couldn't get it with Chinese subtitles easily, so I was watching it on Amazon. And last time I didn't really notice that his name is actually more explicitly related to what I would say, like sleight of hands or trickery. He's called the Tsai Si Shi, which would, I, if I was going to translate it, you know, myself, I might call it a trickster, but it, it definitely gives a sensation of somebody who is using sleight of hands and trickery. And I do remember, so a couple things. Number one, this is on our crash course list of uh, top titles to watch for people who are not familiar yeah. with the genre. So, that, you know, we included this as one of three movies and we've already discussed the other two, which are Magic Blade and Bride with White Hair. And this is a third. I, and so and that was, I wanted to mention that before I forgot. Second thing is we definitely talked about this when we were talking about the magic thing. And I was specifically thinking about this. And one thing I wasn't sure, we, we kind of talked about this before the podcast, and I don't know if we came to a conclusion, but I watched it on Amazon, and I feel like there may have been a, a scene missing compared to the previous version, because in the previous version that I saw, I'm almost 100% sure there's a part where the magician character does some kind of escape trick where he summons like a, a, like a swirl of clouds or a vortex or something, throws his rope up, and then climbs up the rope, and then vanishes. And so I remember that scene when I was originally watching it, and to me it came across as being, you know, magical, as in sort of supernatural. And as you mentioned, we do have a, a little bit of stuff sprinkled throughout the game, including a specific uh, martial ability that we call, I think we call it occult arts, where we sort of, we, we kind of give the game master and the player a little bit of flexibility as to how exactly they want to use it. Yeah. If they want to have a character that really does have some kind of magical ability, like, you know, summoning fire or whatever it is, they could kind of uh, take that ability and run with it. Or they, if they didn't want to do that, they could still use that as some sort of like trickster kind of character, like the magician from Reign of Assassins. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I think that, uh, we also had a slightly different interpretation of that scene. So I, I think that you're right because I have this on DVD. I also uh, watched the version on Amazon. I might even own a version that came on Amazon, which I probably should have checked because sometimes they come on Amazon and you can buy them. And I don't know if it's the same one as this one. But like we were saying, one version they call her Drizzle in the subtitles, another version they call her Shiu. And I'm pretty sure you're right that the other version has that scene. But my interpretation of that scene was I still thought of that as a parlor trick. I just thought of it as like, well, he's doing something that like David Copperfield would do. Do you know what I mean? Like he's got, he, he set all this stuff up in advance and, you know, he, he, he figured he figured out a way to do it. It's still, it's not so supernatural. Well, here's what I'll say. 
it could be supernatural, but it's not so supernatural that I wouldn't refuse to buy it if the director was like, oh, no, that scene was just him doing a parlor trick. Do you know what I mean? Like, if there was yeah, a scene and... later in the movie that just revealed that, I would I would buy it. Same here. And I, watching it the second time around, and especially after paying more attention to the Chinese dialogue, um, I mean, incidentally, the subtitles are quite good, in my opinion, but a lot of times the Chinese contains little hints that don't come across even in good subtitles. But basically, in the end, I'm actually more on, on board with your original assessment. I feel like he's supposed to just be a, a parlor trick kind of guy. And there was referenced in, in the final, his final fight scene, if I remember correctly, where the Wheel King basically says, you know, you, you, should, you can either focus on martial arts or tricks or magic or whatever he called it. And you've tried to combine them both. And because of that, yeah. you're not a master of either one. Which I thought was a really cool scene because it was like he just totally disarms the guy with that statement. It's just sort of like, no, you know, and and the Wheel King sort of operates this way. Like with Drizzle, he intentionally taught her four false moves or four wrong moves in her, in her, what do they call it? The water something they sword. They call it water shedding, I think. Yeah, yeah, water shedding sword. In her water shedding sword style... He taught her four moves that are off, which the monk kind of remedied for without real, but did it in a way that she didn't realize till later in the movie. Um, and so, so, so he he's kind of always doing this thing where he always wants to be able to, I think, take out these people if he needs to. So, so he, I, I get the feeling that Wheel King was holding that, you know, I've been telling you for the years to just do one or the other in his back pocket. Um, so, uh. Also, this movie's really dark. Like, with the, our game is a dark wuxia RPG, and I think especially with the stuff involving turquoise, the movie just gets into really dark territory. Like, there's like number one, she gets buried alive at the end, which is very Edgar Allan Poe. But and she starts, she she her her whole initiation into the organization is by being buried alive. But but then during the movie, she like pretends to cut off uh, Drizzle's husband's head. You know, she puts a watermelon in the sack and like, you know, there's all these like, you know, dark things going on. So, um, and, there, and there's a, I mean, a, Drizzle kills a child at the beginning of the movie. Do you know what I mean? Which I think is, it's, it's in the opening and it's kind of meant to be shocking, I think. But it's one of these scenes where the kid has a concealed yeah. weapon and she detects yeah. it and just slashes him. So, you know, so it gets on yeah, a lot of those dark themes. Definitely darker and, and a lot more. I feel realistic in a lot of ways than than some of the other sort of fanciful wuxia stuff. There are a couple just minor points I want to mention for anybody who's paying attention to every little single detail, which is one interesting thing you pointed out was the um, spoiler of him having his heart on the other side. Yeah. And we have a, a technique in the game that's kind of similar to that, where I think we... I, th I can't remember if it's the organs, or I think it's actually the meridians or something are yeah. switched... And so because of that, I didn't check before doing the podcast. I'm pretty sure like acupuncture attacks don't work on that character. Yeah, that, it, it's the meridians, and, and, and like the, and in fact, this movie also gets into that when the when the wheel king is trying to he he's the wheel king is, is well, I'm pretty sure he's supposed to be a eunuch. I know when we did it on Wusha Weekend, there was some debate about whether he was actually supposed to be a woman. But I'm pretty sure he's meant to be a eunuch. He's a eunuch. Yeah. And and so I, I kind of think it would be more interesting if he were a woman. But, like, the eunuch thing totally <laughs> works. And and so uh, he's tr he wants to get the body because he believes that 
that that it, it contains a, a, a technique that'll allow him to uh, to to fix his meridians and repair, like actually regenerate lost organs, including yeah. you know becoming a non eunuch. So, yeah. uh, but they have a really cool CGI effect where they go into the body and show the meridians and show like the what are they, the Dantian points yeah. and i mean that, that, i like that scene and what he was basically saying was that he, he claimed that by examining the body he could identify the way that that person circulated their energy through their meridians and then by replicating that he could use their techniques and then be able to regrow organs and whatnot um so yeah i i, I like that and you know we've had different me and you have had I, I wouldn't say debates but let's say discussions on um the role of the GM in games in terms of a lot of different things. And my take, again, this is my personal opinion, not Brendan's opinion. You can give your opinion after a second, but <laughs> this, this, uh, the Meridian switching ability that we have could be very, very, very cool, but it could also be a hundred percent completely useless. And yeah. that's really up to the GM. If the, yeah. so my, my personal opinion is if a GM has a character where they're, their person has a meridian switching thing and then you don't send guys against them that can attack their meridians or something it's just a big waste and on the other hand it could be that the characters for example maybe they're doing a heist and they know that they're going up against like a an acupuncture sect and then in that case it would make a lot of sense but in the situation where a character is like you know what i want to be like the guy from reign of assassins or you remember uh, magic blade uh, the guy had the same thing. His meridians were switched as well. Well, there's uh, a lot. So... There's a lot of. Um, that's like a common trope. Like in even in, yes. uh, um, if I remember, I think in the either Clan of the White Lotus or Executioners from Shaolin, the villain is Pai Mei in one of them, and it's like Pai Mei's like either his student or his brother or something in the other one. But it's basically the same kind of character. Yes. Uh, I think so he was it doing is definitely that. Definitely a big big trope. And my personal opinion is it can be super super cool, but. It, it's definitely going to be up to the to the GM. I'm not suggesting that the GM should stack the cards yeah. for the the player characters, but I think the GM can cater to the the advantages and disadvantages that those characters have, and that one is a, is definitely a very specific one that could be very useful or not. Yeah. The also, other thing I wanted to mention. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Perhaps. Uh, all I was going to say was that's also a, co a concept that is sometimes confusing to people when they first start. Well, like the first time I saw Executioners from Shaolin, I was very confused by the Meridian dummy. Um, I think that uh, this movie does a good job of kind of easing you into that concept with that visual. But go ahead. Well, I, w I was going to mention some behind the scenes stuff. So we have something in the. We have one weapon, one type of weapon, and even a technique related to it in the game called the Liquid Sword. And I was trying to track down information on what the Chinese term was for it, because it's a kind of a common thing, and in, in, I think in the movies and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And everybody's, I think, that has. Well, there's even a movie called The Liquid Sword with Gordon Liu in it, I believe. Yes, there's, yeah. yeah, there's a movie, except that the title of the movie is it has nothing to do with that. So. <laughs> Anyway, the point was, in, during my research, as I was you know, going online in Chinese and trying to figure it out, it came back to this movie because her sword technique is basically a liquid sword. It kind yeah. of bends and, and like she can use it to go almost around corners and yeah. stuff. So anybody who is interested in the liquid sword or picks that stuff up in the game, this is the perfect movie to kind of use for inspiration in terms of how it looks and how it's used. 
Yep. No, and there was actually, um, I don't know if you've seen that movie Shadow yet. Um, it's a little bit different, but in that movie, it's no. the yin and yang is like a very big thing, and and one of the characters uh, has to do have a duel, and they it's kind of like Clan of the White Lotus, where they the the wife is like, oh well, if you use this feminine style with this umbrella against his, you know, his like yang spear attack, that you'll be able to defeat him, and so they end up making this these umbrellas with blades on them, but the blades are flexible, and so. They're kind of got that like they're similar to Drizzle's sword in that way. It's like a soft blade type thing. Um, yeah, and, and, and what I ultimately found out was that in Chinese, it actually is just called uh, soft blade, basically. Oh, okay. So that's yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> but then I guess wouldn't maybe it's because and, and I'm just speculating, but maybe because soft would have connotations with water. Is that maybe where that? Come, the liquid sword part would come in from you know i'd have uh, i'm pretty sure that let me double check i'm pulling up my chinese dictionary really quick because I, I i i'm not an expert with uh Rwanda. Mm, po- maybe it's possible but in any case i the, the the what i looked up when i looked it up there are exa- a lot of different examples some of which are essentially your normal kind of sword but some of which are like really long and mm-hmm. almost Almost like a whip, yeah. as opposed to what you would think of as a sword. And, and in a lot of the movies and stuff, the sword actually extends beyond its. And I don't know if it's just them bending the rule, the internal logic of the movie, or if it's meant to be a product of the uh, practitioner's martial arts or the weapon itself. But a lot of times, you'll see these swords like extend way out beyond what they clearly their their length is. Um, so, uh, oh, the other thing that we maybe should get into is the idea of heists uh and uh competing for powerful items because that is sort of a you know number one there's a mcguffin thing with the body but there's also the bank robbery and how you know uh and i mean and banks are a thing that you see in the genre often enough like i know like duel for gold also has a bank is that whole movie is based around a bank heist if i recall but this one you just kind of get like a quick bank robbery scene um but it's a really cool location. You know what I mean? Like, I find that scene very memorable. Yeah, and I think we give a little bit of advice in the rule book about how to handle those things. I mean, you know, we only had so many words to work with, so we basically have a paragraph yeah. uh, for heist and a paragraph for competing for, a, 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 you know, an item. I've seen entire YouTube videos 20, 30 minutes long talking about yeah. heist <laughs> adventures well, and whatnot, so I don't think we'll be able to do a full course here but in any case the whole idea of the team needing to break in to get something is just a, a, a genre trope and it can be a great adventure in itself you know whether it's a campaign or just a single adventure i think it's one of the top i don't want to say easiest but it can be one of the the funnest if the if the gm handles it right well i think one of the cool things about that style of adventure is the the players do a lot of the work. The GM just needs to have a bank and needs to know what is in the bank, who controls the bank, what the security is, things like that. And a lot of it is just going to be the players scouting, you know, maybe developing some scheme in the city where the bank is so that they can have cover. You know, there will be all kinds of things that they'll be doing. Um, and so from the GM perspective, just the more you flesh out the bank, the easier it is going to be to run. And the more you know about, like, okay, are there named heroes associated with the bank, that kind of thing. And we even, in the game, we do have a bank called Lou Bank. It's a little different than the one here. Um, and, and, and it's, uh, 
you know, it's almost its own sect. But like, you know, again, I, you know, I, th- I think, I think that definitely this movie was maybe one of the movies that was on our mind when we were developing that. Um, and, and yeah, so I don't know, should we, 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 we probably should move on to Magnificent Bodyguards unless you have. No, that sounds like that sounds fine. Yeah, let's let's move on. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take a take a risk here. I'm gonna try to read the plot summary from the Wikipedia entry on it. So so let's <laughs> okay. let's see if this is uh you know this might this might be bad because I've read some Wikipedia entries that are that are really off. But I but this one looked really short and sweet, and I think it'll get to the point faster than I will get there. So. The plot of, of Magnificent Bodyguards, and again, this is a Jackie Chan movie. It's directed by Lo Wei, and it's from 1978. And I should say it's a wuxia movie starring Jackie Chan. And so, you know, it's not a typical Jackie Chan movie. It has a different look and feel than a lot of Jackie Chan movies. And he's not doing the kind... He's, he's not like full-on Jackie Chan in this film either. It's not, the, you know... So it's, it's an interesting movie just if you want to see some early Jackie Chan. But... Uh, Lord Ting Chung is hired to escort a woman's sick brother to the doctor, but he does it for free. To get there, they must pass through Stormy Hills, an area of ancient China controlled by criminals. Then the sick man turns out to be the king of the criminals and is not really sick. He is just trying to reclaim his throne from an imposter. The king had previously murdered Ting Chung's father, and now Ching Chung has to fight for his life to get out and also has to avenge his father. That does cover a lot of the plot beats, but it really kind of disguises the big reveal in an odd yeah. way you know so um so first before we, we get into the to the plot and the story and how it might tie to righteous blood ruthless blades i don't think i've really talked in depth with you about this film so i don't know what your feeling on it is because it's not a this is an odd movie i'll just start there and you can uh... <laughs> well yeah it, it is odd i mean so it, even i wasn't sure exactly what around what time this came about but based on what i was looking at it did come come out around the same time as as a, like snake and eagle shadow and uh what was it was it the original drunken master or i forget right when jackie chan was just kind of starting to come into his own but it was you know definitely not like his other stuff and based on what i read i felt like i, I think it yeah in fact i had pulled i have the, the wikipedia so i could follow along with you it mentions that it did well but he doesn't like it because he didn't have creative freedom. I felt like the fighting was very, very stiff and not particularly impressive. I found it, now this is just for me personally, it was really weird to me to have it in Cantonese. Now I know that, you know, a lot of people in the world speak Cantonese, but like, it just was very odd to me because normally I can understand what the characters are saying, and it, but in this one I could hardly understand anything. And so it okay. was... It had a very different feel. That doesn't affect how much I liked the movie or, or, or how I felt about it. Uh, there is the Star Wars music for yep. anybody that doesn't know. It has Star Wars music. But it doesn't take <laughs> it doesn't take like the main themes. It takes like there's a the Imperial I, March. It does have the Imperial March, but it, it does it do the full Imperial March or is it just the build up to it? Because I feel like I feel like they were kind of trying to skirt around the fact that they were using Star Wars music through a lot of it. It's I mean I'm pretty sure it was. I can't. I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's the full Imperial March. They used it a couple times. It, okay. it, it wasn't particularly shocking or something, but like I remember that when I first watched yeah. it and having no idea that it was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, I was like, "Wait a second, what's going on here?" And you know, it came out in '78, which is when Star Wars came out. So when they lifted that mute that music, it's not as though Star Wars Star Wars was a massive cultural phenomenon. It, they basically like, 
took some music from a, a movie that came out recently and then used it. So it's like, I think it, it will be different than them using it nowadays for a new Wuxia movie. Anyway, let me get back to my assessment of the movie. I really liked the the bodyguard escort aspect. I really liked the Jiang Hu aspect. I think it I think it connects very well with our uh, game in the fact that there are you know random Jiang Hu people that are famous for this or famous for that, and they know each other's reputations. I liked the conversations. I liked the dramatic buildup. Um, wasn't a huge fan of the fight scenes. I felt that this one was like I don't want to be too critical, but it was massively a letdown when you get to the final reveal because to me there was like absolutely no foreshadowing or anything to it and so it came kind of out of the blue and you're kind of like oh no okay sorry let me there was some foreshadowing with the woman at the end there was definitely there there. i I I walked that back there was foreshadowing but in terms of like any sort of like caring about it i was Mm -hmm. like didn't really care at all and like i had no I, I literally didn't care so the, the last 20 minutes of the movie is the final climactic fight scene okay and i basically fast i didn't fast forward but i used the amazon fast forward 10 seconds and kind of kept going 10 seconds 10 seconds and it was just like yeah. you know, choreographed fight scenes it just didn't really have much impact for me personally um but other than that i thought it was really cool it was actually a lot cooler than i remember because this is one of the movies i watched way back in the day when i was yeah. first getting into wuxia movies and i, I had just watched you know like uh, new Dragon Gate in and like Bride with White Hair, Storm Riders, and then I watched this and I was like, "Oh, this is Jackie Chan! It must yeah. be so cool!" And I watched like, "What is this?" Uh, but in retrospect, now that I've watched it a second time, it's actually better than I remember. I I had it so uh, the version I saw when when I got it, I I think I got my DVD of it or my VHS from Chinatown, and I had a version that was the half of the subtitles were cut off from the screen. So the first time I saw this movie, I didn't even understand all of the plot. Do you know what I mean? But I still watched it because back then you didn't really care about that stuff. You would still watch the movie. And, you know, I was, I I mean, I'll admit I'm somebody who's there for the fight scenes. So like I kind of have almost the opposite reaction to this movie. Well, one of the things I like about it, and it's a certain style of martial arts fight scenes. This isn't like, this isn't like high end, fight scenes it's just kind of like classic sort of yeah. kind of kung fu wuxia type stuff going on where they they sort of pause for a long time at, with every strike and there's there's a sort of a bit of fun to it but the thing i like about the fight scenes is there are people getting their faces ripped off and stuff like that and the, like there's some really like like and every time i see this movie i forget about the face getting ripped off and it happens twice in the film like two people get their face ripped off um and it's really done in like a whoa that person just lost their face so you know it's 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 got that this is what i would describe as a kind i call it gonzo wuxia it's kind it's not quite Buddha Palm or Holy Flame in the Martial World where they just throw in the kitchen sink. But when they get to that end scene where there's all these reveals, it's just also like, oh my God, the old lady is actually the guy that they're talking to. And and again, like I'll, I'll, I'll admit, what you're saying is true. It's not like they really meticulously built up this reveal, but it's just so fun. Just like all the reveals and then the, you know, the guy, is, and then... The fact that, like, they, they give this big reveal of, like, okay, the guy in the sedan chair is actually the master of the mountain, and the the guy up on the dais is actually the old lady they met at the inn. But then when the whole battle between the two, you know, the, the, the old lady and the guy is over, then he's like, okay, now I want you guys to work for me. And then there's a whole other battle. And, and it just kind of, I don't know, it, 
my one criticism of the film is I think the I do agree with you that last battle with the final guy goes on too long. But I think the all the battles up to that point I think are fine. They're all there's like there's just a bunch of cool like there's a scene where they go into the temple and they're all the monks up on the pedestals. That was a really cool fight scene. There's the scene with the flirty woman in the inn where you know I that that's a very memorable sort of and and I I don't know I believe this is based on a Gulong story because anytime I look it up it always says that the screenplay was by Gulong so I don't know if it's based on one of his stories or if or if he just wrote the script but it has a Gulong vibe to it as well even though it's sort of disguised by the the tone of the movie and the fact that Jackie Chan is in it which kind of you just can't get around the fact that it's a Jackie Chan movie and that automatically puts your head in a certain space when you watch it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's, it's also one of the few movies where you get to see him in like the Wuxia wig and all the Wuxia. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It is Um, kind of unique in that. I mean, if I was gonna, I would say that the first 10 minutes and the last 10 or 15 minutes for me, I could do without. And the middle part I really liked. So you're right. There's a lot of interesting encounters, interesting, fight scenes and interesting character development throughout the middle of it. Mm-hmm. The introductory part I felt was really, it was actually really bad because the lighting was really bad. It, like they filmed yeah. it out in a forest so you can't really see. And it's a, a super, I, you're right. Like the, the fight choreography to me comes across very much like the old, you know, like Beijing opera kind of fighting where it's like borders on too choreographed and unrealistic. Mm-hmm. But in any case, it, it's still Jackie Chan. He does a good job. But that opening fight scene I felt was just really random. It was like yeah. the movie just opens up with a fight scene. And you're like, what's going on? But once you kind of get going, then it, 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 it picks up really I, quickly. I agree with you. I think it's I think the beginning, like the introduction part is kind of dull. And I do think that the final, final battle with the old guy is a little bit... It just kind of goes on too long. Um, I think where the movie really picks up is around the time that the guy gets his face ripped off. That's kind of where things start to gel <laughs> and then when you meet the old lady at the end that lady is wonderful the the she, yeah. and again she's one of these old granny characters but you know she gets drunk and she's kind of reminiscing about this guy that she you know was in love with which later turns out she has you know replaced she's you know so it, you know it casts a whole new layer onto that love story but uh i i i, I you know she's she's a a really eccentric, interesting character. And there's a lot of characters like that along the way. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of really unique people in the, in the movie. Um, yeah. Which is exactly what we were going for. And, and one of the things we definitely uh, picked up, I guess you could say, or, or tried to emulate from Gulo. I mean, you're, it does definitely seem like something that comes out of his mind. And, you know, I don't know anything about how they wrote screenplays for these kind of movies, but I can see how, you know, based on his, writing style he doesn't have you know super long fight scenes so i can imagine him having a, a sentence or a paragraph saying you know jackie chan's character or whatever ting chung or whatever you know ting chung is in a forest and encounters five men and after after a short fight he agrees to go meet their master or something and then they took yeah. that and and translated it into this super long fight scene and same with the last one i can't I mean, there was literally almost no dialogue during the final fight scene, if I remember correctly. Very little dialogue. So that, too, I feel like was probably originally a pretty short scene in terms of what Goulong wrote, as opposed to how it got translated into the final cut. Yep, yep. No, I... I, I uh, um, I, Well, I mean, it's also a low-way movie, so he 
you know, did the, you know, he, he probably made a lot of the creative decisions around the, the fight scenes, but it definitely, the characters all felt very Gulong and yeah, the little absolutely. plot beats along the way felt very Gulong or just like, you know, well, no, yeah. actually it's the old lady or it's, you know, yeah. you know, you know, I it, think, I think maybe one of the things that I, that I don't want to say it was a huge turnoff, but I feel like the <clears throat> three female characters, including the, so basically as it turns out in the end, the, the, the woman that hires them and then her two sort of like, you know, main, main employees or disciples or whatever turn out to be the daughter of the main bad guy. And so because of that, they end up opposing Jackie Chan's character in the end. But I feel like I, get, I think that was where I, I felt like there could have been a bit of foreshadowing because they never portrayed them as being any sort of like, I mean, they were a little ruthless, maybe I feel like, yeah. but I didn't get any sense that they were supposed to be bad guys that would be worthy of fighting and killing and then all of a sudden they just kind of out of nowhere turn into the bad guys but I, that I happens a lot in these kind of movies where like you have somebody who's presented one way and then they're suddenly cast in a whole new light very suddenly and you just kind, it kind of just shifts yeah, um i mean some movies don't do that like like the other movie we just saw reign of assassins has similar types of plot reveals but they they do lay the groundwork for it more. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. um, I mean, w this is a movie that's at this point um, forty years old. Am I doing my math right? So, 88, 98. Yeah, about that. I think. I so, think you're right. And and another thing that bears mentioning is that um, this is so we include the bodyguard or escort job as one of the recommended um, kind of adventure types, and then the adventure that we include in the actual game is directly it's not a, a copy of this but it's exactly this kind of thing where someone hires you to take something from point a to point b and then stuff happens along the way and then something happens at the end too which of course in our adventure can change depending on how the, the players navigate that adventure and and there are similar types of reveals it's not the same thing it's not like the guy that you're taking there returned but there are yeah there are reveals that were i was definitely thinking of this movie when i was advocating for those kind of things in the adventure i don't know what what your mind was thinking about but like i felt that uh um that that there were definitely this movie i think to a lesser extent a movie like kid with the golden arm was probably also on our mind but but this one in particular and and I think that you know they 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 are a staple of the genre so like you know you, you know like there's this idea of the escort company where I guess in D and D if you want to put it in D and D terms it's the you are hired by the king to transport X to Y do you know I mean it's that yeah. that which any time when I was in high school and somebody DM for the first time ninety percent of the time that was the adventure that they ran. Yeah, so the I, caravan guard, basically. Yeah, yeah, the caravan guard, and you it's know, basically it's, what it is. But in the Wusha, it's a little bit, I would say, more. Um, it's more baked into the genre, and generally yeah. a little bit more. I think the one that I was thinking about primarily when we were designing, uh, it's called the Obsidian Bat. Is the is the advent, adventure module in the book? Uh, one of the ones that was that I was thinking about was uh, the kind of opening scenes. Oh shoot! Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick my foot in my mouth if I don't say this correctly. I'm pretty sure it's from Heaven Sword Dragon Saber. I'm pretty sure, or is it? Um, well, there is an escort scene in Heaven Sword Dragon. Yeah, in the Saber. very beginning, where they're trying to escort a sick person back yeah. to Udon. I'm pretty sure it is, and there's a lot of kind of sort of hijinks. That was one of the things that was sort of in the back of my mind when we did the. Yeah, that too. Yeah, I would say that too. That's. I mean, that's definitely like. Uh, 
That's one of the big escort companies. I think they were the Golden Dragons or something. Was that the name of the escort company? It rings a bell, but I, it's been like, many years since I saw it. So I, you know, I, I had a suggestion um, that I've been meaning to bring up to you, which is that we, at some point, do a podcast specifically talking about the adventure modules we created from the GM perspective to help out GMs who are planning for it. So I don't want to get into any super yeah. major spoilers here, but in terms of like magnificent bodyguards and then the adventure we created with the escort job like what sort of parallels do you think are good to sort of take note of when you're watching magnificent bodyguards and kind of have them in the back of your mind for either the obsidian bad adventure or just for general um escort adventures in terms of how they should or could play out in in the setting that we've created well i think one of the things is something that you brought up before the podcast which would be the way that the encounters played out in in the magnificent right, yeah. bodyguards, I think I think that was very on point because that's I mean any adventure where you're going from point A to point B, if nothing happens along the way, then it's kind you know then you know then the adventure really takes place at the destination. Do you know what I mean? So I think you know and 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 again we were kind of talking about well how do you do that because the, you know some some gms gravitate towards encounter tables some gms gravitate towards planned encounters and and we kind of did a we we we, we i call it sort of more of like a training wheels approach for that one because it's an introductory adventure where we kind of have they're quasi planned encounters but they're you can move them around if you want to the more skilled the gm is the more they can move them around but if you're going to do it with encounter tables because this movie definitely feels like, even though everything all kind of comes together, if this were an RPG, it would feel sort of like random encounters occurring as you're going. I think uh, one way to do it is you have a random encounter table, but it's tied to specific encounters that you're rolling on. So this is where they meet the scholar. This is where they meet blah, blah, blah. And you just, that's who they happen to meet based on the role. Another way to do it is you have a totally random encounter table based on, you know, Maybe you have like a list of martial heroes or you have a, uh, a list of types of encounters that you could have. Uh, in our game, you know, you might be, we have a section of the NPC section called Other Threats and it might include other threats. Um, you, you would roll randomly, but then as the GM, you might actually try to tie it to what's going on. Do you know what I mean? So, um, so let's just say for sake of argument, you have a, an encounter and you roll and it says, oh, a martial hero, roll on the martial hero table, and you roll, and it's a bone physician. You would need to come up with a reason why bone physician is on the scene and why he is antagonizing the players, potentially, in that encounter. So, um, you know, maybe he works for the big bad guy. Maybe, you know, maybe he, uh, you know, is 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 secretly uh, trying to help the heroes. It's up to you, but you would have, you would probably want to, you know, try to connect it to the, to the plot around the escort job so that uh so that it ties together i think i think that's generally a a a handy approach not every encounter would have to work that way but i think this idea that random encounters have to have no bearing on what's going on is one of the reasons why people don't like random encounter tables because they don't understand no you can actually tie a random encounter to everything that's going on in the adventure and it's not a problem um so so i don't know any any other thoughts on the the encounter and, part? You know, to add to what you, you you just said, like um, in the pre in the adventure module, we include, like you mentioned, we have it to where a beginner GM who is not comfortable 
trying to manage all of that could very easily just kind of go through the list of encounters that are provided either in order or they could mix them up. But we also include the option for more advanced GMs to, you know, mix things up. I think that one thing that bears mentioning is that the adventure module we provide is actually intended to be very, um, very fast paced and short. In other words, it goes from one location to another location in China that like is a real two real life locations that are relatively close that would take most likely no more than five days of travel. And that makes it a lot easier to handle. Like you could say, oh, I want to have one encounter per day or something. I think the problem, whether you're talking about our game or any any role playing game, one thing that can be challenging is when you have a really long journey. So, for example, in our game, if you're traveling from, let's say, Beijing to Hong Kong, that's going to be a journey of probably weeks. And then yeah. that gets into a situation where you're, it can be challenging. I mean, I ran a, I ran a, uh, what is it called? Uh, shoot, I forget. It's the first um, Horde of the Dragon Queen. It's the mm-hmm. first fifth edition module that they created. And it has something like a, a two month overland journey where the characters are caravan guards. And it's like the first couple days were like really cool. And there were some random encounters. And then after days and days go by, it starts getting very, very <laughs> monotonous. And, you know, if for an inexperienced GM, that can be the, that can be the demise of a fun campaign that, if they're not paying attention or well, on top of their game. A lot of that is also going to depend on the type of campaign you like to run and the type that your players like. But there are some... So, so number one, in our game, we should point out that the way that Overland Encounters technically work is instead of like rolling every day, it's like every seven days. So we, we tried to space that out more so that it's not as... Um, it's not as much of a grind. You know what I mean? I mean, it still happens because, you know, there's definitely, you know, a journey like that, you're still going to have a lot of encounters, but it won't be one every day or potentially, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, but I used to run a lot of adventures or not a lot of, a lot of campaigns where they were campaigns were like, you know, like the players were in a place like Ravenloft, say, and the goal was to get home. And when you have, when the goal is to get home, it's basically an on the road adventure campaign structure. And so there are a few ways to handle that. One way is to, you know, you have random encounters along the way and you try to make those as interesting and as adventurable as possible. Um, Another approach is that you have adventures in mind along the way. So, you know, it's sort of like the, those old TV shows where there'd be like a character who was kind of a wandering guy. Like, I don't know, like, well, what would be a real classic example? Like I was, was, was it highway to heaven? Was that the name of the, uh, or stay away. Maybe, or, or like Kung Fu, maybe. Or Kung Fu, uh, or, yeah, Kung Fu would be a more the Hulk, genre. Maybe. Yeah, the Hulk. A- any of these kind of old shows where, you know, the guy wanders into town, and he meets some woman, and he's got to help the woman's kid type thing, but only in, like, you know, more RPG terms. Do you know what I mean? They wander yeah. into the village, and the village is overrun by some bully who the players, you know, they can just pass through, but they might, you know, be sympathetic to the townspeople and try to help them. You know, I I think that that can work if you make all of those adventures interesting. But um, and again, not that that would be the purpose of an adventure here, but just because the topic came up, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that's I all think, in how you how much preparation you do for the journey. Sure, I think another advantage that people playing our game are going to have now it depends on what time period they play in, and we go into some detail, but not a huge amount of detail regarding this. Yeah. But supposing that you go in certain time periods in which the 
you know, China was relatively well developed throughout history. For instance, the secret time period that our Jianghu is takes place in, which we have not revealed to anybody, but which does is based on a historical time period. For all intents and purposes, you could travel along roads throughout most of China and have rest stop areas almost every day, whether that's an inn or maybe a little city or village or something, as opposed to you're out in the fields, like pitching tents and like in D&D terms, worried about like orcs or wolves or something. Yeah. So I think the 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 idea of journeying through the day and then reaching, you know, the, the, the inn, the tea house, the wine shop or the next village and then having, you know, some, you know, maybe the bone position that you rolled for is is having tea in the tea house and then they run into him or whatever it is. Yeah. I think that, that that is a lot easier, going to be a lot easier for GMs to sort of work into a realistic um, escort campaign as opposed to you're just off in the wilderness like camping. Well, and that's another thing about encounters. They don't have to, so I think a lot of people when they, because I, I, I think when people get frustrated with encounter tables is because they don't realize how much creativity you can apply to them. They're not meant to be, create creative straitjackets. They're actually meant to spark creativity. That's their purpose. And they're a tool. And a tool you can always ignore if you want to. Do you know what I mean? A tool is not a rule. A tool is just something to help inspire you, help mix things up. And so, you know, when you roll on an encounter table, number one, it doesn't just have to be the guy that you roll or the monsters that you roll. Not that we have monsters in the game, but whatever threat you roll, it, they don't just have to walk up to the party and say, let's fight now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's not, that's not the... Yeah. This, it, it can be a lot more interesting like that than that. So, like, say, for example, the players go to an inn, and you say, okay, no, Bone Physician is there. When you roll in the encounters, Bone Physician, you say, okay, why is he there? Ah, whatever the players are transporting, he wants it because he's Bone Physician. He thinks he's better than them, and he thinks that he should have it. Um, and it might be of interest to him for some reason. And so maybe Bone Physician is not traveling alone. Maybe he has a few other named people with him, and you pick a few other low-level people, and you decide... Well, when the players get to the inn, Bone Physician's going to do something rather dramatic. And so it's like you said, they get there and Bone Physician is drinking tea. He's already at the inn. And then, you know, maybe he just stares them down a little bit. He just looks at them with a curious look on his face. And that that's all they notice. But then over the next hour, maybe a couple of other people start to wander in and take strategic positions in different places in the inn. Kind of like in Come Drink With Me, that sort of, you know... There are these people sort of coming in and you, you you can when you do stuff like that, I think it's a much more interesting encounter because it's not even necessarily clear to the players. Oh, is this is this a fight? What is this? Do you know what I mean? And and then that gives the players a chance to maybe go up to Bone Physician and talk to him. And it's always possible it could be resolved in any number of ways. It doesn't necessarily have to resolve in a fight. You know, it could it could. Maybe the players are strong minded, but maybe Maybe they're able to say, look, you know, you, you say you want this object, help us bring it to where we're going. And if you want to, if you want to attack the person who it's going to, you can do that. We won't stop you, but you know, help us and we won't interfere with you taking the object. And maybe he agrees. I don't know. So there's, there's different avenues that you can go down with, with encounters like that. Um, I don't know if that gets into what you were thinking, but no. Yeah. I mean, I think that another upside to using encounters is that when the GM is is mapping everything out, even if he's not railroading the players, a lot of times it doesn't come across as being as spontaneous and sort of like real life to the players as opposed to when they're out, especially on the road and they don't know what's going to be coming 
up the road next. I think it's it's great, and it makes it more interesting for the GM as well because when the GM plans everything out, it can be boring. Or alternatively, you know, when the players, you know, go off on their own and do something com- like what happens if you plan out this big escort thing for them to escort something from Beijing to to Guangzhou or something to, to Hong Kong, and you like have all, like have all these encounters planned out. And then the first thing they do outside the city is they decide to just abscond with the item and go sell it in the next city over to become rich. And then all that planning you did is kind of for naught. So it, relying on more random, uh, relying on the random encounter tables in some situations, I think is a lot better planning than trying to meticulously go into every detail before. Well, and if the play, if the players are intent on not doing whatever it was, you know, that's 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 one of those things where you just kind of you kind of have to be flexible and go like, I don't know. Every GM is different, but, but my way of doing things is I'm always happy to throw away whatever I have planned. Um, in some ways it makes it easier. Cause then I'm not like, wait, what did I, what did I have planned? Do you know what I mean? So I, I think when, when, when players pull moves, like the one that you mentioned, encounters are a great way to sort of keep it alive, but also an, an optimistic way to approach that is, Hey, I don't have to worry about my notes anymore. Now I can just yeah. worry about what's going on. And I can just kind of think, well, what makes sense here? What, what do I think would be interesting to have happen here? And, uh, and so, you know, and sometimes you can also do this thing where you say to your players, look, I wasn't planning on you going here. Give me five minutes to just think. And then, yeah. uh, you know, that, that'll, that'll sometimes fix that, but encounter table break guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm usually pretty honest about that. If I, if I, if I have, uh, if I have trouble, uh, you know, with, with you know, coming up with something on the fly because the players are going in a new direction, I'll just say to them, look, I need a few minutes. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so I don't know. Is there anything else about this uh, movie that we need to cover? Well, there was one thing I was thinking about. Uh, how are we doing on time, by the way? we got about 10 minutes, so. Okay. Well, then this might be a perfect way to close it out because I think actually both Reign of Assassins and Magnificent Bodyguards has – something in it that it's not immediately obvious if you're watching the movie but if you're looking at it in terms of our game mechanic it makes a lot of sense so in our game mechanic we have uh killing aura and also killing aura darkness which is basically it's basically your level but the idea is that the, the stronger a person becomes in their martial arts the more you know powerful their aura is and you can assess it and sort of see how many people they might have killed, which will give you an idea of what kind of a, you know, are they like a ruthless yeah. killer or are they like an enlightened monk or whatever? And I think one of one of the reasons we wanted to have, oh, and incidentally, at a certain point, they can hide that aura. Yeah. So if you run into somebody and they look blank to you, that could mean that they're not a martial artist at all or it could mean that they're like a top master. And the reason why we did that is because we wanted to emulate the sort of look and feel of these movies and novels where the characters don't really know how strong the other person is it could when you when two people face off you can't just look at them uh and instantly know exactly how good they are per se that so yeah. i think in both of these movies there's a lot of that where the characters are facing off and they're willing to fight now if you're talking about regular role-playing game terms you know if you like for example if a party walks into a room in dungeons and dragons and there's an adult dragon there and they're all level five you know that you're not going to be able to fight an adult yeah. dragon. But when five characters walk into a room and there's an old guy sitting there and he has white hair and he do- they can't read his aura and they're level three, they're going to be thinking, hmm, is this guy just an old guy? Is he yeah. really strong? 
there's also special abilities that can mask your aura even when you're not a high level. So I think that in both of these movies, you have a lot of situations where the characters are facing off and they jump in to fight and then they get killed instantly or maybe they don't. And I think that's a really good representation of how we wanted it to be. We don't want, we want the characters to be wondering, is this opponent somebody I should fight or not? And we want them to try to be assessing it and maybe succeeding, maybe failing. Yeah. So yeah, I, I like that in both of these movies. And 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 killing aura comes up because they mention her her aura. The, and, yeah. And, yes, that's right. Uh, so uh, also I, something that the, I guess a couple of things. It, it happens, I think, kind of in both in different ways, but at least in in Magnificent Bodyguards, ease of impersonating somebody in Wuxia is fairly fairly effortless do you know what I mean and, and yeah and so I believe we have a disguise skill in the game right I'm pretty sure we have disguise in there um and I just want to emphasize that to people because when you run a game like this if somebody's using disguise it's 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 maybe meant to be way more effective than it would be in another RPG do you know what I mean that might not be immediately apparent if you're not familiar with the genre but like there's this it's it's and I'm not saying this to like as a knock on the genre, but it's kind of a Scooby Doo like thing where they literally peel off the person's face and it's another person underneath the mask. Yeah, you know what I mean? or it could be as simple as I mean, one of the hugest genre tropes is when a woman dresses up in man's clothing. Like everybody thinks she's a man, yeah. even if she is well, has like a beautiful face. But here's the thing: that sometimes I feel like they go one of two ways with that. Either it's what you just said, where they just they just think it's a man because she's dressed like a man, even though it's a beautiful woman. But I also think sometimes it's just meant to be, well, uh, we're just going to go along with, you know what I mean? Like, like sure, the, yeah, there seems to be, be yeah. it seems to be that sometimes, but that's, that's also, a, um, yeah, that's definitely a, a very big genre trope. Um, you know, and I think part of it, I mean, if you want to, if you want to try to make it, if you want to try to explain it realistically speaking, I think that probably historically in China, the, idea of a woman dressing in a man's clothing would be so like it like that just didn't happen and so i think part of the reason is because generally speaking they're going to assume that a guy wearing guys clothes is going to be a guy and and you know even if he's skinny or has like beautiful features because there are those those characters as well the beautiful men and whatnot i think that also kind of plays a little bit of a role in it i do remember and this is a little bit off topic but i do remember reading that in the song dynasty it was actually a common game for men to dress up as women um for entertainment purposes um well yeah i mean there's i mean i there is that way in terms of opera i you know that's that's true and women weren't allowed in opera as well right But I think that the reverse is probably probably different. Okay, I'm not a historian, so I probably shouldn't make these assertions. But I feel like that's part of it, at least. Well, and I think um, on the on the whole, women dressing up as men in the genre, one thing that I uh, that I think is not always it's not always apparent to people just how often that's happening because they're period pieces, and so you don't always know. Like the first time I saw Come Drink with Me, I didn't know she was supposed to be dressed as a man. Because yeah. it looks, exactly. you know what I mean? I'm not familiar with, I think it was Ming Dynasty period clothing. So it's not till later in the movie where they have her dressed as like a woman with the hairdo and everything that you're like, oh, okay, she's clearly dressed very differently. Yeah. Now. Well, um, even in Magnificent Bodyguards, the girls are all dressed in really modern outfits. Like they would yeah. never be wearing that in, in ancient times. Especially yeah. all the guys have bound 
top knot hair, so that would place it at least Ming Dynasty or before. I don't remember if they mentioned it, but there's I think it would be highly unlikely the girls would be wearing trousers and even in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you know, the Michelle Yeoh's character in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon dresses in trousers and a tunic. Uh, you know, she's supposed to be a martial art bodyguard, so it makes sense in the wuxia context. But I'm not sure in in real life if there were ever women walking around in trousers with sabers <laughs> guarding caravans. So, um, so yeah, the other thing that I wanted to mention was Magnificent Bodyguards was filmed in 3D, I believe, and... You kind of can tell because, like, they keep doing that thing where they poke the spear at the camera and a rock falls right into the camera. Right. I was going to comment on that. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize that was because it was filmed in 3D. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of an it's kind of significant because it's, an, you know. Uh, that you totally know. jumped out to me. And I was like, why are they doing this? Yeah. So, thanks for pointing that out. I didn't realize that. Well, and obviously now you can't watch it in 3D. So, it's like when you watch, what was that movie? Um, the Wax movie with Vincent Price that was in 3D. Where they're, you know, you watch it now, and it's like they're throwing yo-yos in your face, and they're doing all these things. It's like, why are they doing that? It has nothing to do with the movie, but it's because you know they're just making use of the 3D. In 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 this film, it's at least tied to what's going on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. So so I don't know. I I think that um, uh, you know, these are both films that are that are on our list. I think the the more pressing one for people to watch would be Reign of Assassins. That's definitely encapsulates what we were going for in a in a uh you know more than magnificent bodyguards but magnificent bodyguards is on our list of movies to watch because it it inspired content and it kind of even though it's it's a little on the lighter side at times it definitely still kind of gets into some dark territory like i said people are getting their face ripped off and you know and those sort of things um and it has, you know, unusual eccentric characters, really ferocious villains, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Anything to add before we, we head out? I don't think so. I think I think we're good. All right. So so we'll be back on next time. We're going to... I don't know what movies we'll be talking about, but we're kind of going through all the films that we mention in the book. And again, I think the book is still scheduled for an October release, right? Is that the uh, the time That's... frame we're looking at? Yeah. So... So it's right, righteous blood, ruthless blades. Uh, it's uh, you know, in, and you know, uh, you know, we'll 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 talk more about the game content and stuff like that as we as we get closer to the release. And until next time, we will talk to you later. With the laughter comes the rain. With my anger comes a tide of emotion, killing joy, cutting steel. Oh, oh, oh.